Welcome to the Western Bible Podcast Series, with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled The Shadow on the Path. The talk was given by V.J. Fedorshak on April 1st, 2023, via Zoom. V.J. is the author of The Shadow on the Path and Father and Son. In this talk, he considers the development of the shadow, the impact it has on our lives and on the path, ways that we avoid it, how it is encountered, and the useful perspectives of Carl Jung and James Hillman on working with it. In the discussion, V.J. and others in attendance refer to spiritual teachers from different traditions, including Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche, Arnaud Desjardins, and George Gurdjieff. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Vijay Fedorshak. This topic, Shadow on the Path, is very important to me. My life changed when shadow work started happening for me. I didn't even know I was doing it, but I started seeing a therapist at one point. And all the shadow material that I started working with has made all the difference in the world, in my relationship, in my life, in many ways. The shadow is a concept first advanced by Carl Jung to describe those parts of ourselves that we reject and repress. So that sounds pretty conceptual. But this is like really a visceral consideration, I think, for all of us. Everybody's got a shadow. No exceptions. And if we are aware of it or if we have some sense of what that is for us, we can work with it. And if we don't, it can run our lives in unseen ways. It may run our lives anyway, but we have some sense of it and how to work with it if we pay attention to what's going on for us. Jung said that until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Things just keep happening. People are like this, and I don't like it, or something. The failure to work with it is often at the root of our interpersonal problems, our interpersonal conflicts, and organizational conflicts. And on a mass scale, I think it has a lot to do with the tragedy that we see in the world, a failure to understand and work with shadow issues on an individual and collective level. And with regard to religion and spiritual organizations, shadow behaviors are incongruent with the ideals that they generally have. What it seems to me is that beliefs and good intentions are not enough because our psychological truth is very powerful. It trumps our beliefs and sometimes our better intentions. So I want to start 
by talking about some material which I find fascinating. I hope you'll find it interesting. And not just interesting, but relevant. It's interesting that I'm doing this talk. I got a picture from a cousin of mine just the other day. This is me, probably about two years old. Oh, how cute. I don't know if you have any recollection, any vague sense of what it was like for you to be that age, but I do. So when I revisited some of Margaret Mahler's considerations, this started coming up for me again. Margaret Mahler died in 1985. She was an Austrian-American psychiatrist. She advanced the theory of separation individuation. Okay, so I'm going to use some conceptual terms here. She said that psychological birth is different from biological birth. In fact, she wrote a book called The Psychological Birth of the Child, something like this. And her work influenced object relations theory. Probably most of you haven't really studied Freud so much, but he was a pretty fascinating character in a lot of ways. He proposed this drive theory where the two basic drives of human beings were sex and aggression. And that's been dismissed in many quarters, of course, these days. But he came up with some pretty amazing theories that underlie a lot of work that gets done today, psychologically. The topographic theory of us being composed of a conscious part, an unconscious part, and a pre-conscious part, which we can access. And theories about different parts of ourselves, like the id, ego, and superego, a child part, the parent part, and an adult part. What Mahler saw, one of the things that she saw, was that there was a drive for relationship. And this is part of object relations theory, that the child develops and our personalities and who we think we are actually develops as a result of our relationship with what Freud called objects. Seems like rather inhumane term in a way, but the idea was that we have drives and we seek to reach those aims through different objects. Mahler studied children from birth to about three years old. Not going into the details so much, but basically, she tracked when kids began to separate and actually develop their own self concept. What she observed was for the first month, there seemed to be no separation between the infant and the mom. It seems like the mom's an intrinsic part of the baby in a merged state. And then as time goes on, the baby starts wandering away and checking out the mom. But kids don't even know, it seems, their mom still exists if the mom goes around the corner. And at some point, there's this developmental leap, which is termed object constancy, where the child realizes that the mom still exists. The mom is internalized in a way. And one recognizes that one is separate and the mom is still around. And that happens at around 24 months. So in the 70s, I think around the time that Margaret Mahler is doing some of her research, there's also this study called 
the Rouge study or the mirror study. And the mom and the baby look in the mirror and the mom says, who's that? And they've put some rouge on the baby's nose. And up until about 20 to 24 months, the baby doesn't even recognize, it seems, that they're looking at themselves. And at about that time, the baby starts touching their nose when they're looking in the mirror. And it's assumed that at that point, they realize that they're a separate person, a separate being. It's possible that they have some concept of themselves prior to that and then just don't recognize faces. But regardless, the idea is that at some point, a child realizes that they are a person separate from their mom. One more thing about studies that I find pretty interesting. There's a researcher named Mary Ainsworth, who is one of the founders of attachment theory. And attachment theory says that if a stable bond is not consistent between a child and a parent, probably there are going to be social, emotional, and maybe even cognitive problems for the child. So Mary Ainsworth developed what's called a strange situation. So she would have a mom and child go into a room, and these were in three-minute increments, and then a stranger would come in and be with them for three minutes. And then the stranger would leave, and then the mom would leave and leave the baby alone. And then the stranger would come in and spend three minutes with the child, and then the mom would come back in, and then the stranger would leave. And they observed the child's response to all this. And Mary Ainsworth categorized attachment styles. And most kids seem to have a secure attachment style. When the mom was gone, they were upset. But when the mom came back in, they were comforted. And they accepted that comfort. But in a certain percentage of children, in a certain percentage of cases, the child reacted in different ways. The child would not really pay much attention when the mom came back into the room. And I think from having studied a little bit of the dynamics of mothers who had children who did this, they determined that these were moms who were mostly emotionally unavailable. And the kid had actually learned that they weren't going to be comforted and had already at I think a year and a half, year of age or so, figured out how to deal with that. Only not intellectually, but organically. So that was the avoidant, insecure attachment style. And then there was an ambivalent attachment style. So in these cases, the mom would leave and the kid would be extremely distressed. And when the mom came back in, the kid could not be comforted. Basically, the mom's attachment style was very inconsistent with the child. Sometimes they're emotionally available, sometimes they weren't. So there are these insecure attachment styles that get set up very early. And one more attachment style they came to later was called the disorganized attachment style. Much less common, but one in which the kid seemed fearful of the mom. And the mom was actually frightening or frightened herself. The thing that's interesting about this is that these kind of attachment styles persist throughout the life of a person. It's not like it can't be changed, but 
without some work on yourself, it's likely that we play out things that happen to us <laughs> at such an early age. And on top of that, if you're in a situation where you grew up with an insecure attachment style, you're more likely to have other kinds of traumas happen in that kind of family. Physical, sexual, emotional abuse, physical, emotional neglect, parental substance abuse, separation or divorce, domestic violence, incarceration, mental health issues. Those are ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. And those get laid on top of attachment styles. With this background, we might generalize some of the principles about the self-concept that develops. So there's the separation, and then there's what we come to identify as. So object relations theory says that we develop our identities from relating to objects, basically our primary caretaker, our mom, our dad, people who are around. That's how we develop our personality and our assumed identity. Components of parents' psyches are, there's another word, interjected. That means like swallowed whole in a way that can only happen in a free and open mind that's got no defenses. It just goes in. So along those lines, while this is happening with the good mom or the good dad, the qualities of nurturance and all that, there are also emotionally painful situations. I remember them in some ways. It's not just that this happens objectively. Somehow the child relates with these things, however they do, and comes to whatever conclusion they do, and that becomes cellular. Certain parts of children, it's inevitable, I think, suppressed and then repressed. So that could be things like anger or innocence or vitality or needs. The parent might just be tired or just impatient. Parents, a lot of times when a kid gets to a certain age, they shut down instinctual parts of a child in the way that they were shut down when they were kids, maybe at the same age, because this is coming up again and they still have their own shadow features going on. And so this is intergenerational. This disowning of parts of ourselves, it's unconscious, a defense from painful feelings. The child can feel there's something wrong with them. I work with kids in a residential treatment center, teenage girls. I just can feel this with kids. They believe that there's something wrong with them. Since their innate feelings aren't acceptable to their parents, there must be something wrong with them. So these things, as I mentioned, are suppressed, and then they get repressed. And what happens is there's some compensation that happens as a result. So I don't know if a kid is too vital in a case where maybe they get yelled at verbally or otherwise, mistreated they might become adaptive. Or a child might not have their needs met and might become aggressive. So there's some kind of compensatory way of being that gets baked into the personality structure. And we're totally unaware of that. So we might look at our personality, the ego identities that we have, 
as a function of what we've identified with and what we've disidentified from, which is in the shadows, not so clear. But when we relate to people, we see that there are reactions to things. We'll go a little bit deeper into that in a few minutes. So how do these things run us? Perhaps you've heard of another principle, repetition compulsion. It's an example of how the shadow can run us. There's some urge to recreate and overcome childhood hurts. Really? Even now? I'm in my 60s. Something wants to resolve that. A real clear example, I think, is when people get into the same kind of relationships over and over again. They get into a relationship with someone who can't fulfill their needs, and this mess happens, and then the relationship breaks up, and then what happens? They get into another relationship, and the same thing happens, and the same thing happens. It's something about the people that one gravitates toward reflect this issue that wants to be resolved. But you're with somebody who is not going to be able to give you what you want. Always. So this thing can go on and on and on. The impact of the shadow, also, it can be very destructive. In an effort to maintain the repression and to keep painful feelings from awareness, just looking on a global scale, my gosh, what goes on? Some of you probably have read Alice Miller. I'm not sure what country she was from, but she was a psychoanalyst. and had experiences during World War II, which impacted her deeply. And she wrote two books that I've read, one, Drama of the Gifted Child and For Your Own Good. And she did a case study of Hitler and said that in order to keep his repression intact and to keep from being humiliated or feeling humiliated in the way that he had been as a child, millions of Jews had to die. She says, the unconscious compulsion to revenge repressed injuries is more powerful than all reason. So we get involved on the spiritual path. (laughs) And we see things from a different angle, the point of view of spiritual work. Maybe the illusion of separation, the insubstantiality of ego, all that rings true, makes sense. And we really get that at some level. However, the shadow is still operative. So how is the shadow encountered? How can we see and work with it if we're blind to it? Good question. Anybody? I think artwork is one way to get at it. Writing might be another. I know Alice Miller herself did a lot of painting and discovered a lot about herself. Mm-hmm. I think also having Sangha, who you trust. For me, when the Sangha is able to point at something that I hadn't seen, that's very powerful. Yes, other people. The shadow shows up in relationship to others rather than in the memory of things that happened for the most part. So the idea of projection, how we attribute characteristics in ourselves to other people. We might see somebody, oh, they're so greedy, or they're jealous or competitive, or whatever, sneaky. But 
maybe over time it dawns on us that maybe that's a quality in myself that I don't like. It's not actually the other person that I don't like. It's something in me that I'm seeing in the other person that is unacceptable. It said that first we reject, then we project. There are these therapy sayings which have truth to them. And transference. When somebody reminds us unconsciously of someone from our past, a particular quality, and we have a reaction to that. Jung says that the shadow, we don't see it in ourselves so much. We see it in other people. And part of the reason is because it's the thing that a person has no wish to be, in his words. Herman Hess said, if you hate a person, you hate something in him that is part of yourself. What isn't part of ourselves doesn't disturb us. I mean this rhetorically, but have you experienced that? Sometimes with people who other people are having a very strong reaction to, you don't have a reaction. And vice versa. There's something in a person that we actually dislike in ourselves. So this is basic in one way, but it's basic conceptually. To actually bring that into the body is challenging spiritual work. Writing Shadow on the Path, I was compelled to do this years ago when I was doing shadow work of my own that was so needed. At that time, I looked around and I saw in different spiritual communities what was going on. And it just seemed so obvious that these were manifestations of the shadow. I just had to explore this and writing was a good way to do it. And a book that I referred to was one written by Zwieg and Wolf called Romancing the Shadow. And they said that we come into contact with the shadow through our secret sources of shame. When does shame show up? In emotionally charged projections about others. Oh, yeah. When that's going on, I just really need to be honest with myself and say, oh, let me step back from it. Take a look at this. What's really going on here? In addictions that disguise our needs, in slips of the tongue, have you ever been embarrassed? You just bust out with something and it really gives yourself away? In humor at others' expense, these things are living in us. In physical symptoms that reveal the effects of negative emotional patterns, in midlife awareness of urges that have been neglected or ignored, in dreams that reveal unknown aspects of ourselves and in creative works, as you mentioned, in art and writing. One thing that's interesting about this subject is that the shadow isn't necessarily all the bad stuff. We may look at it as evil, and it does manifest as evil in the world, definitely. And in ourselves, it's the part of us that we have no wish to be. On the other hand, it's entirely likely that there were parts of us that were shut down that are really important and wonderful. Maybe we don't know that we can draw or write, or we don't know that we have the ability to speak, to relate with people, so many things. There are hidden talents that we have. I grew up and I became a city planner. This was a really boring job for me. And over time, I learned, oh, I have some other abilities. 
to enliven those positive shadow qualities is an important part of this work as well. So consider the qualities that you like least in others. What triggers you? How come? Is it out of proportion? And that probably is something that you could look at in terms of the shadow. I've been experiencing mischievous delight in hatred. One of my styles and tendencies is for merging, merging into, let's say, states of happiness. And so all the things brought up, it's like an invitation to discover the truth about myself or about oneself. There's sort of a dual motivation that I have in terms of just wanting to merge into a divine condition. The other path is a path of truth or what's actually true about myself. So those are separate? I see them as two different drives, actually. And so if I look at this uh, delight I'm having and hating, I'm seeing that I have valued the spiritual path or realization or divinity at the cost of not really being honest about myself to learn more about what's actually going on. Well, that's a great observation to go further. And it just dawns on us, I think, over time, that it's really nuts and bolts that we have to deal with to actually go further. Right. So this dawning over time hits home because there's a sense that with fewer and fewer years left to live, do I just want to be absorbed in divine states? Or do I really just want to appreciate life or my life or your life? So the shadow on religious and spiritual paths. Society incarcerates people and punishes shadow behavior. Of course, we need to protect people. But does this really address the problem? I would say it probably doesn't. Not like I have an answer about what to do, but it seems putting people in jail doesn't really solve this problem that goes on and on. So different religions have gotten involved in religious wars forever. Hindus and Muslims, Jews and Muslims, Christians (laughs) fighting the Crusades. And in terms of the shadow, most recently, in the last few decades, the sexual abuse scandals that have rocked Catholicism. It's not just Catholicism either. Many different Christian denominations have the same problems going on. And whether or not priests are more prone to do that kind of thing is really a question. But I think the attention given to it is so warranted because of the amount of trust that people have given to clergy. So there's a John Jay report from 2004. 4% of priests had allegations made against them. Doesn't seem like a really high number, but the number of kids 
and how that affects kids. And perhaps you heard a few months back about an independent commission on sexual abuse in the church report, 2021, I guess it was, where in France, it was estimated that 216,000 minors had been sexually abused by clergy. Over the past 70 years, from 1950 to 2020, and that the number actually increased to 330,000 if you include links to schools and youth groups. It's not just the shadow of the acting out, it's the cover-ups, too. There's this movie Spotlight, maybe some of you saw it. It won Best Picture Award in 2016. Great movie. You know, that part where the investigators found the list of all the priests who had been reassigned to other churches, and they realized that all these people were the ones that were doing this stuff. Just the other day, March 29th, I saw this newspaper piece from Reuters. It said that Father Hans Zollner, one of the leading members of the Vatican Committee Against Child Sexual Abuse, said that he had resigned from the group, citing concerns over the way it was operating. His abrupt departure comes after several members resigned early on, complaining that the commission had no real power and that they met with internal resistance still. So when opportunities arise to act out repressed feelings, I don't say this to condemn the Catholic Church, although, of course, this really is unacceptable behavior. But when we have the opportunity to act out repressed feelings in our own ways, does that happen? It seems clear that belief systems are not stronger than the shadow, because probably these people have a part of themselves that intends to be of service. But they have opportunities, and the shadow is powerful, and that happens in many arenas of life. But let's look at what we're probably more familiar with, which is what we might call new religious movements based on Eastern traditions, schools that have teachings that come out of Hinduism or Buddhism or Sufism. Is the shadow not much of an issue on those paths? There's a different view of God than in mainstream religions. All of you know this, I'm sure, but Buddhism doesn't believe in a separate being or God. All beings have Buddha nature. And there's this principle of interdependent co-arising, where everything is the cause of everything else. You could say that there is no God, or you could say that everything is God. There is only God. In Hinduism, there are schools of Advaita Vedanta, where there's this idea of the Atman, which is the true self within us, and Brahman, which is the universal reality. And in Advaita Vedanta, those are one and the same. And the idea, as I understand it, is that we are this individual, so to speak, person, but also the totality. And when the false self drops away, or we're not so identified with that, there's an opening. And we can be moved by the universe. All of us, everything has Buddha nature. And in Sufism, one is transformed into the state of love when the self, the identified self, falls away. And the poetry of Rumi is an expression of that. It's just 
so, so moving. And even in Christianity, in the Gospel of Thomas, I'll just read this one part of it that's always struck me. The kingdom is within you and it is without you. When you make the two one, and when you make the inner as the outer, and the outer as the inner, and the above as the below, and when you make the male and female into a single one, then shall you enter the kingdom. This principle of non-duality. So we're on the path and probably have some resonance with that. In terms of ego development, I was just so struck reading a piece in one of Trungpa's books about how the ego forms, how our sense of ourselves solidifies, but it's all, it's all made up, he says. Something about it really resonates with me, how ego is a collection of skandhas, which are collections of mental forms that give rise to clinging and desire. So in the beginning, just like in Mala's work with a baby, for the first month, they're in the merged state, it seems. So in the beginning, there's just open space. And then we start to feel anxious and start to cling. and form arises. So there's a sense of being separate from something else, form, some other form. And then after that, the second skanda after form is feeling. And we start to feel whether this form, what we start to sense outside of us, is attractive or threatening or neutral. And then after that, the third skanda is impulse, and about how there's an impulse to move towards something or to draw away from it or to be indifferent. And then the fourth skanda is concept, and we start to label things as good or bad. And ego just starts to solidify and get more and more sophisticated. And then the fifth skanda is consciousness, and that's bringing everything together into one nice package that's airtight, it's seamless. And we think that we're who we are. This is according to Tibetan Buddhist teaching. But Trungpa says, according to Buddhist psychology, the ego is simply a collection of skandhas, but actually there's no such thing as ego. So we get on the path and start to practice based on whatever teaching and somehow are not in touch with our own shadows. I don't think that I will go into much detail, if any, about schools or organizations, but what has gone on there. Many of you probably know about these things, but there have been a lot going on in Buddhist schools and Hindu schools with American teachers, Zen teachers, and communities around money, sex, power, control issues, especially after the teacher dies. Sometimes people look at that and say, how could this happen? These are really well-meaning people, dedicated, and they've been at each other's throats. Or there's obvious competition or jealousies, identification with points of view, difficulties with getting along. And there's also the experience that I think we all have sometimes of transcendence, of love and beauty. But the dark side tends to come out 
at a certain point. And maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe that's actually the way it's supposed to be because when these things surface, then we get to work with them. But it can be pretty shocking, not only to see this outside of oneself, but to see it inside of oneself. For me, I wouldn't have said, oh my gosh, this is what's going on for me. I pointed the finger at other people and slowly it dawned on me, oh, you're a contributor to this. What do you want to do now? There's not so much time left. Do you want to own this and go forward and honestly work with it? But it's a lot easier not to do that because we really don't like to be vulnerable and we really don't like to see things about ourselves that aren't too savory. So a way that we could do that, not look at ourselves, things in us that are shadowy, is to spiritually bypass. So John Wellwood coined that term and defined it by saying, it's the tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. How does that happen? How do we do that? When I was studying myself in this arena with some intention and also looking at the spiritual landscape, a few ways came to me. So the three ways that occurred to me were discounting, judging, and interpreting. So discounting. We can say that working on psychology focuses on an impermanent and illusory ego. It's not worth the time. Psychology is an area of work that is a sidetrack from the real work, whatever you would describe that as, surrender, opening, whatever. Therapy can heal the ego, but it can't heal the problem of the ego. So you can look at that and you can say, yeah, not going to really pay much attention to that. But if we have some shadow issues with power, we feel powerless and we get some power, how do we handle it? In some of the schools that have had shadow issues erupt, it seems to me like that's been an issue. When people have been in power and have misused that. Judging, we can think we should be beyond these childish emotions and take on a spiritual persona as a result. Have this spiritual image. Maybe copy some spiritual teacher or person and try to align with a spiritual self-concept. And we can judge other people. We can indict others for their behaviors and be kind of mean-spirited in judging and interpreting. We can mistake understanding spiritual teaching. You know, I was just talking about the development of ego and all of that in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and all that. We understand all this, so we think that we're living it. But we tend to see with just part of ourselves, with our intellect and not with our being. So to me, this leads to a lot of questions. I'm just going to ask them, not like I'm looking for an answer, because I don't know that there is just a clear answer to them. But about teachers, what is an authentic teacher? How can you tell? Can teachers have genuine spiritual experiences of freedom that get co-opted by ego, so that they think they're in a high spiritual state after an experience is past, but they're kidding themselves. 
Can islands of shadow exist? In other words, can part of you be transformed in a free and open state with compassion and then part of you not be? Can you be triggered into different shadow expressions and still assume that you're in this free and open state? As I'm asking these questions, I'm thinking of specific scenarios, teachers or communities where these have been questions, I think. How does the teacher deal with their human needs? Being a teacher can be a lonely job. If teachers haven't dealt with their shadows, they can cause a lot of harm. But for students, whether you're with a teacher or not, does one have a childish relationship to not being involved with a group? or a teacher? Or does one have a childish relationship to a teacher or a group? Does being an adult involve a willingness to accept help, but also to stand on one's own two feet and discriminate for oneself? Do students blame others, and in some cases teachers, without taking responsibility for their own decisions? Basically, is there some understanding of the way that the shadow operates in us Is there the dedication to work honestly with that? I don't feel like those parts, those shadow parts ever go away. And I've heard it said that one needs to make friends with that, with those parts. We want to get rid of them. We repress them. But a real teacher, I'm not really sure how you figure that out. I think it's more of experience and sense and some sort of track record or just different things like, does he have 12 Rolls Royces? There becomes an opportunity to look at things like shock from the teacher. In my experience that you are told something about yourself and then you trust the teacher so you're willing to look at that. That's like such an amazing gift because that's one of the things about having someone you trust that much is even if everything in you says no that's not true when you get that reflected back to you from a teacher or from someone you really love and trust you are hopefully compelled to look at it it breaks you open it breaks your heart and you look at it And then maybe you have a glimpse of that shadow part so that over a long period of time, the shadow is there and you make mistakes. We make lots of mistakes, but maybe after a while through self-observation and being open, we're not as much of a wrecking ball. We don't wreak as much havoc. So so it feels like it's in, in degree. And then also, one of the big ones is blame. But also there's self-blame. Falling into self-blame and, oh, I'm so bad, is almost an excuse. It's almost a cop-out to just being willing to like be with what it is and not disappear under this veil of shame. And also, there are ways that can help us to exercise perspective, like Arnaud Desjardins' article from The Child to the Stage. If you can look at that and say, okay, I'm not an adult, 
And I need to be willing to look at what's weak in me instead of just resting on the laurels of what I have succeeded in can be extremely valuable. Oh, man. Gurdjieff, of course, taught self-observation. And the four principles of self-observation are observing ourselves without judgment, with ruthless self-honesty, without trying to change what is observed, and with relaxed body. That's a mouthful, though. Sounds like, oh, I'll just follow these four easy steps, and we're there. It takes many, many years, a lifetime probably, to get some traction with that. But I think that it's possible that shadow features can be transformed and used for the work, for spiritual work, for others. The personality structure is not going to change, but the context of the thing can. I believe that. I really do. So do I. And we see, you just keep working, and then maybe one day you realize, oh, hey, I am who I am, (laughs) and this is coming through in a different way. I don't feel the same. I can be pretty dogged about things, and the way that I've done that in the past has not been the greatest. (laughs) But there is something about being determined in a way that's also spacious and takes everybody into account. When that happens, sometimes I realize, oh, some of my shadow features, maybe they're being used in a different way. And I think that that happens for all of us sometimes. About these questions that I asked, I really think that there's no answer. Over time, you sense it out and you see if you trust a situation or you trust the teacher. But I think that when we do our own shadow work, clarity arises. We can see things more clearly when we have done some work on those things that move us in unseen ways. And even with 12 Rolls Royces, to me, someone might have this opulent situation around them and be a real teacher. One might not. Depends. It's not a matter of form. This opens up a whole arena of things to talk about. But I have four quotes about work with the shadow. Jung said, there is generally no effective technique for assimilating the shadow. It's more like diplomacy or statesmanship, and it is always an individual matter. First, one has to accept and take seriously the existence of the shadow. Second, one has to become aware of its qualities and intentions. This happens through conscientious attention to moods, fantasies, and impulse. Third, a long process of negotiation is unavoidable. I mean, that's just the way it is. If we take this on, little by little by little, we develop more facility with something that has run us our whole lives, that we buried at a very young age, and that continues to run us. So then the second quote from James Hillman. The cure of the shadow is recognition of what we have repressed, how we perform our repressions, how we rationalize and deceive ourselves, what sort of goals we have and what we have hurt, even maimed, in the name of these goals. On the other hand, the cure of the shadow is a problem of love. 
How far can our love extend to the broken and ruined parts of ourselves? How much charity and compassion have we for our own weakness and sickness? If we approach ourselves to cure ourselves, putting me in the center, it too often degenerates into the aim of curing the ego, getting stronger, better, growing in accord with the ego's goals. But if we approach ourselves to cure those weaknesses of stubbornness and blindness, of meanness and cruelty, we come up against the need for a new way of being altogether, in which the ego must serve and listen to and cooperate with a host of shadowy, unpleasant figures and discover an ability to love even the least of these traits. So I'd ask you to think about what you feel the shadow is for you. It may not be just one thing, and not that you can identify it in black and white. But I think that we have a sense of it, something unresolved that we continue to come up against, particularly with other people. And if you've got a pen and paper, take a moment, as I think some of you are, and just write that down. And if there's an example of that, a situation that comes to mind, spend a little time thinking about that. The third quote from Jung again, filling the conscious mind with ideal conceptions is a characteristic of Western theosophy, but not the confrontation with the shadow self and the world of darkness. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. I don't know that there's a goal about working with the shadow. It's a situation that requires a long process of negotiation and relating with parts of ourselves that are difficult. I'd like to end with this quote which I think is fantastic because it's so true. We can do so many things in life. We all have a job, things that we do that serve. But to me, this cuts to something that I think if we do not do, we will not fully be able to serve in the way that we can. So Jung says, if you imagine someone who is brave enough to withdraw all his projections. Such a man knows that whatever is wrong in the world is in himself. And if he only learns to deal with his own shadow, he has done something real for the world. He has succeeded in shouldering at least an infinitesimal part of the gigantic unsolved social problems of our day. Anyone? You really have to put your big boy pants on to do that one. Which one? The last one, <laughs> the last one there. Yeah. I know. Sure. But if we've got a limited time left, what else is worth doing? For me, I have to look at times when I'm not walking the talk and catch myself and say, do I want to make this turnaround or not? If I don't want to make this turnaround, really, what am I doing? Some wise person once said that people are always doing what they think they need to do. 
whatever we're doing, it's because we think we need to do that. I was listening to an interview with an actor who plays bad guys a lot of the time. And he said, the thing you have to understand about portraying someone like that to get into the character is that they never think they're a bad guy. People who are bad guys think they're following some virtuous path or fulfilling some necessity that needs to be done. They have a sense of purpose that is compelling to them. So I think in terms of accepting shadow parts of myself, I need to remember that somewhere in there, there's a motivation that was not a dark motivation. It was something that a child decided based with very limited information and limited perspective, this thing had to be repressed or denied or whatever. And that underneath everything else, there's basic goodness. And that on some level, taking responsibility for the shadow has to involve acknowledging the existence of basic goodness and that that's actually something we're repressing. True. Tremendously destructive things happen as a result of believing that you're doing the right thing. Is everyone doing just what they think that they should be doing? Maybe so. But if we don't examine what we do, maybe we cause a lot of damage. If I'm manifesting something from my shadow, it very often has a compulsive quality. I think self-observation and recognizing the consequences of our actions probably is a very key piece. Yes. Shadow is not the easiest thing to self-observe. 